Okay, so this class is kind of a, an introduction to Christianity. It's a, you know, preparatory class for baptism. I tried to think of, like, what are, like, the basics that you would need, like, if you're an adult and you're going to get baptized. You know, um, when a parent brings a child to be baptized, the parent makes promises, you know, on behalf of the child, that they'll bring the child to church and teach them the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the Creed and, you know, things like that. So the expectation when a parent brings a child to be baptized is that they're going to, you know, be bringing that child to church and like, you know, teaching them about the Bible and things like that. So when an adult comes and, you know, in our society now we have a lot more adults who, you know, weren't brought to church, you know, just because fewer people just go to church on a regular basis. You know, Abel and I talked last time, he grew up in Cuba, so there was no church to go to. There was no opportunity. Um, so, um, so anyway, as, as people find themselves in different situations and not knowing much about the church or Christianity, this class is kind of meant to sort of bring someone up to, to kind of speed on like the basics, you know, what is the Bible and what is the gospel and who is Jesus and when we say Trinity, what do we mean by that? And so last week we looked at really two, two issues. One is like a worldview issue and then the second would be a very, very too quick, you know, overview of the Old Testament. So I always like to talk about worldview because, you know, um, if I'm talking to a person who's a totally a naturalist, you know, they believe that nature is all that there is, there's nothing above nature, then everything I talk about in the Bible is going to be ridiculous, you know what I mean? Because I'm going to talk about miracles in the Bible. I'm, I'm going to talk about, you know, God intervening in creation. And so if you're not a supernaturalist, then, you know, there's no way, or at least open to supernaturalism, there's no way anything I say henceforth is going to make any sense. Um, so, so I always want to lay that kind of groundwork, and usually what I like to do is I like to begin with either naturalism or supernaturalism, which are kind of the only two big meta games in town, and then I t look at polytheism or theism, or, or, or monotheism, meaning are there lots of gods out there? If we agree, if you're a supernaturalist, there's some kind of god out there. Are there lots of them, or is there only one? And if there's only one, which is the only rational position, I would argue, then which one? You know, has this God revealed himself? Maybe it's an unknown God still we've never heard of out there. Or is it the God of Revelation? So the God of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. That's really the only three monotheistic games in town. And then, so then from there, you know, I argue that God really has revealed himself. The one and only true God of the whole universe really has revealed himself. And he's made himself known through the scriptures. And uh, one thing we talked about in the Old Testament was that there are different genres in the Old Testament. Um, so you do have historical narratives. So um, if er everyone has a Bible, um, um, here you go, Tyler. No, no worries. Um, open up to the front. So just find the, the index, you know, the table of contents, uh, a list of the books of the Bible. It's actually kind of helpful for what we're doing right now. Uh, so somewhere be before Genesis. So you see the Old Testament, the New Testament. You know, some people don't like the term um, Old Testament, and that's, that's okay. Um, you know, it, 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 the Old Testament isn't old in the sense that... Uh, he's, he's fine to play in there if you want, but you, you might close those doors if you want. Um, so it, it's not old in that it's like an old car. You know, it doesn't work anymore. The Old Testament still has a lot of value and a lot of meaning, but it's been fulfilled in Christ. So there's a difference between something being old and no longer useful and something being fulfilled. And, and when we talk about the Old Testament, we talk about fulfillment. 
Um, so, like I said, you have different genres. You've got historical narrative. You've got um, the, you have the prophets. The prophets were men of God who God spoke with, and then the prophets addressed that word of God uh, to the people of God. You've got um, apocalyptic literature, so some of the really strange-sounding uh, books in the Bible are maybe like apocalyptic mm-hmm. literature. Um, you know, so they kind of predict maybe the end times or... Uh, they have unusual uh, imagery and things like that. Uh, you have wisdom literature, things like the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, and the Song of Songs. Those are grouped together because they're wisdom literature, so they talk about how to be a wise person or um, the wisdom of God, or they are prayers or hymns as the Psalms are. Um, so, you know, so a lot of it, some, a lot of it is historical accounts of what happened. And a lot of it is, you know, prophets. So you've got prophets like Nehemiah, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. The last 12 books are all prophets. Some of the books are really long. Some of them are really short. But that is the story basically of, again, God, Genesis 1 to 11, remember, is kind of its own thing. You know, you have the story there of creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. Then you get into God working with Abraham, his son is Jacob, the son that the lineage follow, uh, goes through. I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac's sons are Jacob and Esau. The lineage goes through Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And uh, if you remember the story of Joseph, okay, Joseph ends up in Egypt. There's a famine. His brothers end up in going to Egypt, and they stay there. And just yesterday, I watched Prince of Egypt with my kids. It's on Netflix. I'm telling you, it's really good. Um, I mean, I think for a cartoon movie that depicts Bible stuff, it's worth watching. That is the story, really, of the people now already in Egypt. There's hundreds of thousands of them. They become essentially workers for the Egyptians or slaves. And then the story of Moses in Exodus is him going into Egypt and getting the people of God, the Israelites, the 12 tribes of Israel, out of Egypt. So once they end up in the Promised Land, then they relate to God through the law. The law is given to Moses on the mountain. There are 613 negative laws and even more positive laws. So these people were really governed by the word of God and how God wanted them to live. Okay, between Malachi and Matthew, and even that's not exactly accurate, between Mal- the book of Malachi, the prophet, the last prophet of the, of the Old Testament, and the events of Jesus, is a better way to say it, is about 450 years. Okay, so... so the people of God knew like, that God had not spoken anymore. They, they were aware of that fact. God has not sent a prophet. And in between the Old Testament and New Testament, you actually have a lot of things that are, that are going on that actually find their way into the New Testament, but they're not mentioned in the Old Testament. One example of that would be in the New Testament, we hear about people called Pharisees and Sadducees. And you might be thinking, well, who in the heck are Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, they were two kind of competing groups of very conservative Jews. Okay, so they live now in, they're in what we would call Israel, and by the time of the New Testament, they're conquered by the Romans, so the Romans are occupying the land in which the Jews lived, or the Hebrews, or the Israelites. Those words can kind of be used interchangeably. And um, so the Pharisees and Sadducees were like really conservative groups you know, of Jews that are trying to hold on to the traditions and hold on to the law and make sense of it in the midst of occupation and all of that. But they're not in the Old Testament. 
there are groups of people that came along in between the, the Old Testament and the New. So like I said, there's not a, like a seamless thing from old to new. So today we're just going to look at the New Testament and try to give kind of, a, kind of an overview of the New Testament. And, uh, you know, if, if you were to go to seminary, for example, you, you might spend a whole semester just on like Paul or the Gospels. Or you might spend a whole semester on just one book of the of the New Testament. So we're doing a really big picture, high level kind of you know thing like what is the New Testament, what's in it, and, and that sort of thing. Okay, so let me say that just as the Old Testament has different genres, so the so the New Testament has different genres too, right? So you've got um, some historical narrative. Uh, you've also got some letters. Um, like we actually have letters that someone named Paul wrote to uh, churches that he had started. And you've got some apocalyptic literature as well. So the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it's the one they make all those horror movies about, okay? Um, a lot of misunderstandings about the book of Revelation. But the Revelation is a, it is a revelation. It is an apocalyptic vision, uh, an end times vision that... John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, that he has, um, you know, from God. So it's a, it's a dip, that would be a different kind of book. But let's take a step back and um, let's talk a little bit about timelines quickly. So our, our dating system is based on the life of Jesus. You probably know that, right? Um, sometimes called B.C. or um, A.D., so Anno Domine or Domino, like the year of our Lord. Um, and so, uh, so the years that we have, of course, trace back then to the birth of Christ or thereabouts. Uh, might be a, a few years off, depending on who you ask. So Jesus lived then from what we'd call, let's just call it zero to about 33, assuming he died when he was 33. It could have been 30, but let's just say 33 for the sake of today. Um, and so then you have, uh, after that, you have his disciples who are, go, are going to go out and basically preach the gospel, proclaim Christ crucified and risen, and basically start the church. And uh, later gospels are written. The gospels are written probably in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, maybe even a little bit later than that. Um, so you've got four different gospels, and let's go ahead and look at those gospels. So the first four books of the Bible or the New Testament, rather, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, so who are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Um, well, I believe the authors of those Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are some scholars who say, well, nowhere in those Gospels does Matthew say, hey, my name is Matthew, and I'm writing this Gospel now. You don't quite have that in the New Testament. But what you do have is, you know, a kind of tradition that says the author of this gospel is Matthew or the author of this gospel. Now, the author of the gospel of Luke is pretty clear um, because he actually says at the beginning of it who the author is. And same with John. He says the author of this is the beloved disciple. And we come to believe that that is John. OK, a um, couple of basic facts, though. For example, how many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve, very good. Okay, and and one thought on that is that what Jesus was doing then is he's hearkening back to the twelve, uh, the twelve tribes of Israel. So there are twelve. Remember, there are twelve sons 
that Jacob had. The youngest was Joseph. They're the ones that end up in Egypt, and then they have 12 tribes. So, um, so the Israelites were, were, 12, were comprised of 12 tribes. So it's thought that what Jesus was doing was he was essentially saying, these are the new 12 tribes, if you will. Now, it's not that the disciples' children would go on to be the new people of God, but that they would be the 12 tasked with proclaiming the gospel to all the world. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, betrays him. And so they actually replace, in the book of Acts, they actually replace Judas so that they would still have 12. Now, eventually those 12 die, and it's not like there are 12, you know, apostles today or anything like that. Those are offices that once they died, you know, that, that just kind of came to an end. Um, but who are these gospel writers? So Matthew, it is thought, was one of the disciples of Jesus, okay? And John is thought to be one of the disciples of Jesus. That is one of the 12 that traveled with Jesus during his life and ministry, and later they wrote about what they saw and witnessed and experienced. Mark comes along later. Uh, Mark, you see, referenced in like the book of Acts or in Paul's letters. And, and that's really cool because um, what you then have is the way the Gospels and the letters and Acts, they all start to kind of overlap each other. You know, people that are referenced here are also referenced here, and the timelines all kind of sync up. So there's a lot of incidental or sort of even accidental uh, sort of uh, credibility to the Gospels and to the New Testament as a whole. But I'll talk more about that later. Luke is really fascinating because Luke um, is not only the author of the Gospel of Luke, but he's also the author of Acts, the book of Acts, which is the book that comes right after the Gospels. Okay, see so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And we know that Luke wrote both of those because in the introductions to both of those, Luke says, I'm writing, he's actually writing to a patron, a guy named Theophilus, which is a word meaning lover of God. Phyllis is a, one of the Greek words for God, and theos is the Greek word for God. Theophilus might not even have been his real name, might have been a nickname, but his name was Lover of God. So we'll look at the intros to both of those books here in a minute. Um, but what's interesting about Luke is that as you're reading the book of Acts, Luke is talking about they, they, they. They did this. Peter and Paul went out and spread the gospel here. Or these were the events that took place. And then all of a sudden, Paul goes to this one place, and, and um, I believe it's like the area today that would be like Turkey, if, if memory's not mistaken. And all of a sudden, he starts saying, we. Like, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> all of a sudden, Luke's there. You know, Luke's now traveling with the apostles. So what you, what you actually have is that Luke, what's fascinating about Luke is that at some point, he gets tied up in the work of the church, in the proclamation of the gospel. And now, all of a sudden, he is one of the group that is traveling around with the apostles preaching the gospel. And then at some point, he ends up in Jerusalem, and he's hired. He's a physician, by the way. He's a doctor. So he's a learned, intelligent you know, guy who can read and write. And so he is commissioned to basically write an account, an orderly account, of the life and death of Jesus. And then he also writes... Acts, which is the story of the church after the resurrection. And so it's, what's really cool about Luke is that as you're reading Acts, Luke is, he kind of ends his work as a historian, as one who has been out gathering information about the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and what the apostles did after the resurrection and all of that. He kind of ends that work and he doesn't totally end it, but now he's part of the story. 
So Luke is really, really interesting from my point of view for that reason. Luke is also used to date some of the, the, the writings of the Gospels. Um, so we, we know, for example, that Peter and Paul died probably in about the mid-60s. Remember I said Jesus lived until about the year 33. And so Peter and Paul died, we think, in about the mid-60s. So you're talking about a generation of time between the death of Jesus and when they died. And since Luke wrote Acts with Peter and Paul still alive, the idea is that he wrote the book of Acts in the early 60s, which means that he also wrote the Gospel of Luke before that, in the early 60s probably. This is how the theory goes. And then the theory is that he definitely had Mark when he was writing Luke, so Mark is actually written before that. So the theory then is that Mark and Matthew and Luke actually could be written as early as the mid-50s or the 60s, which might sound kind of late, but it's firmly within the realm of eyewitness testimony. And what the Gospels are then, my contention would be, is that they are historical accounts of eyewitness testimony of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and then the early church. And that becomes really important because... Remember how I said there are different genres. There's historical narrative, there's apocalyptic literature, there's wisdom literature. Well, the Gospels are nothing if not historical narrative. Um, in fact, on my radio show, sometime this summer, I'm going to have a debate between a believer and a non-believer, both New Testament critics or scholars, on whether or not the Gospels are um, historical biography. And there's some theory that they, that they were just historical biography, and there's some theories that there weren't. But this would have been how you would have written a biography. Um, I don't want to get too much in those details, but the point is that these Gospels are written, I believe, firmly within the life of the eyewitnesses. They're written, in many cases, by eyewitnesses. And um, like I said, Luke wasn't an eyewitness because he wasn't one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But he clearly would have had access to a lot of eyewitnesses to the events. And I believe one of the people he interviewed for the Gospel of Luke is Jesus' mother, Mary. Because you say, well, how did someone write the account of the births of Jesus? You know, we, every Christmas we have the birth stories of Jesus, how he, how he was born and how the angel came and spoke to Mary. Well, how would he have known that? I think Luke talked to Mary. <laughs> I think she was still living. Um, and, uh, and Luke got her account. And Mary, and Mary would have said, it was the most amazing thing. <laughs> Here's how it happened, Okay. Remember, Luke or, or Mary could have uh, been pregnant with Jesus when she was young as 14 or 15 years old. That wouldn't have been too uncommon. So by the time Luke is writing, she still could have been in her, um, you know, 60s or 70s or something. That wouldn't have been, you know, if you survive into your teens, you know, you can survive a, a long way. So, okay. Um, so here's what's also really cool about the, the Gospels. So we have four of them. Okay, um, it's actually pretty remarkable that we've got. If you look at other ancient documents or ancient, you know, historical works, it's pretty remarkable that we've got four different accounts from four different authors about the life and death and, uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, if you compare that, for example, to other notable figures of history, we have way less. Um, you might have, for example. You know, Alexander the Great, for example, commissioned his own autobiography. 
and he hired, I believe it was Aristotle's nephew to write it. And uh, when something wasn't flattering, you know what they did to, an, to a biographer? You know, they killed him. You know, if it wasn't written in the way that they wanted, you know, there, were, there was hell to pay. So you've got, so if you compare, for example, the Gospels to, say, to biographers of Alexander, well, first of all, we only have one biography of Alexander. It's, we, the first copy we have is centuries later, centuries later. So hundreds and hundreds of years later do we even have a manuscript, a physical manuscript that talks about Alexander 300 years before. And it was written by someone that he wanted it to be, that he wanted to write it. So you're, it's, gonna, it's not going to be the most honest account, right? It's not someone coming in taking a critical look at the life of Alexander. It's going to be someone that he commissions to write it. And then you've only got one. So we actually don't know very much, if you think about it, about Alexander the Great. You know, I think we know a lot more about Jesus, for example. So with Jesus, what you have are four independent accounts about Jesus. And they're written then to different audiences. They're written to a mixture of kinds of people, for example, Jews and non-Jews. And that'll make a difference in the Gospels as well. Um, and we also, there's also, a, a, and this is really kind of getting in the weeds, but there is a really amazing manuscript tradition of the Gospels and the later writings in the New Testament. We actually have a lot of, you know, manuscripts from the, the second century um, where pieces of papyrus, right, the paper that they wrote the Gospels on, we have, a, we have lots of those. We have about uh, almost 6,000 uh, Greek only, only in Greek, um, manuscripts or pieces of paper or fragments of letters um, that we can use to make sure that we've got the accurate transmission of the gospel. In other words, we don't have the gospel that Luke wrote. Like, we don't have that piece of paper. <laughs> we don't have that scroll is what it would have been. Uh, probably. We don't have a scroll somewhere in a museum that's like, oh, that's the gospel that Luke wrote. We have things that people copied after the fact. But we have so much of it just in Greek, which was the language of the New Testament. And then we've got thousands and thousands more in other languages, um, Latin and other, other ancient languages. We can compare all that and we can say, you know, we actually do have a really accurate version of the, you know, when I look at a Bible, I have a, I have, I have a very accurate account of what the original authors wrote. And if you compare that to other ancient documents, we, we're, we're head and shoulders above everybody else in the ancient world in terms of the amount of manuscripts that we have and the diversity that we have. You know, again, four Gospels, okay? Uh, you're, you're in the insurance business, so you deal with car wrecks, right? You deal with eyewitness testimony all the time. Is it always the same? Okay? So you got two people witness a car wreck. They never tell the same story, okay? That doesn't mean they're lying, in fact, if they did tell the exact same story, your ears might perk up. You might be like, I sent some fraud going on here. This is too, too good to be true. So what you actually want is you want to have more than one eyewitness to something. You want to have more than one account of things. You want to have multiple accounts of what's going on. And, and sure enough, in the Gospels, you do see different versions of Jesus, if you will. I mean, uh, it's the same Jesus, but just like if someone wrote a biography of Abel, you know, some might emphasize your aspect of a father, some might emphasize your aspect as a worker, as a husband, right? Or, I mean, we all have different angles to who we are that a biographer would pick up on. And so in the Gospels, we do have different angles, if you will, of Jesus' personality and his ministry that are kind of picked up on. And so that's part of what makes the Gospels 
different, and that's why it's so awesome that we've got four of them, and that we have this manuscript tradition of all these old pieces of papyrus and stuff like that where we can actually um, know what Jesus did and said with certainty. Let me give another one more thing, and then I'll be quiet. If you've got any questions, we can, we can do that. But um, the early church fathers... Okay, so these were the guys after the apostles, you know, the people that were leading the churches in what we would now call like, you know, uh, southern Europe and northern Africa and, you know, the, the Middle East. These were, these were where the early churches were. And the people who were leading those churches and writing and doing theology, the church fathers, um, if we took all of their quotations of Scripture, we could, we could, we could put together the New Testament just from that. So even if we didn't have any like copies of Luke's uh, uh, gospel or the book of Acts or John's gospel or letters that Paul wrote, anything like that, even if we didn't have any of that, if we just had the writings of the church fathers, we just took out all the times that they quoted the scripture, we could recreate the entire New Testament. So I always, I, I do want to emphasize that because when people come into Christianity as adults, you know, they're also going to end up, if they have an interest in historical aspects of the Gospels, or if they watch the History Channel, there's a lot of skeptics out there that are going to basically say, well, we can't really know what the Bible says because we don't have the original manuscript. Um, you know, so I always do want to do a little bit of a talk about how, yes, we actually can really trust what the New Testament says. We, in fact, have an incredible record of transmission. Um, and, 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 and I'm listening to a lecture series right now. It's like 30 lectures that are 30 minutes each. And it's just on this process of the original writers writing. And then what would happen is that those people would be spread out all over the world with their gospel or their letters from Paul. They would be copied, right? And then that, so that you have a tradition here and you have a tradition here in Europe and you have a tradition here in Northern Africa. And what's really cool is that later when, you know, travel and everything became a little bit easier, even in the last couple hundred years, we bring these traditions together and we go, wow, they're, they're not that different. You know, so you have all these traditions that, where the gospel is spread out all over the world. People are making copies of copies of copies of copies now of letters and gospels. And you might think they get really different or it's like a fishtail, you know, it really changes. Um, you know, in the miracle stories, well, they can't be true. Somebody just made that up. Somebody heard a story and then they elaborated on it. But what happens is that in all those traditions, when you bring it all back together, they say the same story. There's no elaboration. Jesus really healed this blind man. Jesus really raised this man from the dead. These things were actually carefully preserved. So you're going to run into critics who say you can't trust the New Testament documents because, you know, they... People were lying, people were making stories up, or it's like the telephone game, you know. You say one thing and it changes over time. And actually what we have is evidence of the exact opposite. Um, people carefully preserved the original writings of the gospel writers and, and the letters of Paul. Okay. Let me say one more thing, um, and then I'll be quiet, I promise. There's a word that uh, a scholar who's here in Houston, actually, Dr. Craig Evans, um, uses. It's called verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. There's a, there's a $5 word for you. What does it mean? It means that there are incidental ways that the Gospels overlap each other unintentionally. 
And that's the best kind of thing you can get. Because like I said, if you have four eyewitnesses that are all the same thing, they're in collusion with each other. But if you have incidental details that kind of work out where they support each other, then you can sit back and think to yourself, gosh, I, these are really trustworthy documents. Okay, So let me give one example. It's one of the best examples I've ever come across of the ways that the Gospels support each other. Okay. Because remember, there's four Gospels, four authors, four different accounts of things. So there's one miracle that is in all four Gospels. Only one, okay? It's in all four Gospels. It's when Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So he's only got two fish and five loaves of bread, and there's 5,000, actually 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people or so. And there's only five loaves of fish here, and he's got to feed all these people, and he miraculously feeds all these people. And that miracle account is in each of the four Gospels. And it's the only miracle that's in each of the four Gospels. Now, here's what's cool about that story. They don't all tell the story in exactly the same way. Different Gospels will give you different elements of that story. So, for example, one of the Gospels early on will tell you that Philip is from the area called Capernaum. I think I'm remembering that correctly. If not, pardon me. But So Philip is from Capernaum. Now, later in a different Gospel... Philip is the one who says to Jesus, oh my gosh, Jesus, how are we going to feed all these people? Another gospel tells you that when the feeding of the 5,000 took place, they were in Capernaum, okay? Another gospel tells you, and I'm, I'm overlapping a little bit, but basically that Jesus um, talks to Philip about, you know, buying bread and for, to feed all these people because he was from Capernaum and he would have known where to do it. So then other gospels talk about how people are moving through the countryside. You know, you get the impression it's like an exodus. You know, it's like lots of people going back and forth. Another gospel talks about how it's the time of the Passover, okay, which would have been in the spring. Another gospel talks about how there's lots of grass on the ground. Okay, now what am I getting at? Now you start to put it all together, okay? And here's what's cool. The Passover would have been in the spring. Spring would have been after the rainy season. There would have been grass on the ground. People would have been coming and going because that's what happens at the Passover. It's the highest festival for the Jewish people. So they would have been going into Jerusalem and leaving Jerusalem by the hundreds of thousands. They're coming from all over the close-by world to make sacrifices at the temple to celebrate the Passover. And remember we talked last, last time about the Passover. That was when the, uh, it's the 10th plague when Moses goes in to get the people out of Egypt. Okay, And you put the blood of the lamb on the door and the lintel of the door and the angel of death of God on the 10th plague passes over the people of Israel and it kills the firstborn of the Egyptians. That's when the, Egypt, uh, the Hebrews, the Israelites, hightail it out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and all that. Again, watch Prince of Egypt and it tells that story really pretty, pretty dramatically, kind of darkly actually. Anyway, so, so people are going to be coming and going at the time of the Passover still into the New Testament because they're making their way to, to Jerusalem. So what's really cool about the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is that there are four different accounts, and they all include different details. What disciple Jesus talked to about where to get food, where they were, what time of year it was. And if those things didn't comport with each other, you might think something's wrong. But they do comport with each other. For example, if Jesus had said, have the people stay standing because it's muddy, well, then that wouldn't have comported with the season that other gospels say that, it, that it's in. Um, so there's lots of stuff like that in the Gospels where there are incidental accounts and details um, that tell the story of Jesus. So let me stop there and just ask, are there, are there any questions 
about this. I mean, we haven't even gotten into what's in the Gospels. Um, but I wanted you, if you don't believe that what we have are historical, yeah, historical, you know, inaccurate records of what are in the Gospels, then talking about what's in them, I don't think is going to help a lot. So I do like to spend time saying, you know, these are really interesting eyewitness accounts. They're they're verifiable and things like that. So any any questions about anything we talked about so far? What did you say? Vera similitude. <laughs> Vera similitude. What does that mean again? So that is when when you have um, overlapping details that correspond to each other. Okay. Um, also, what you find in the Gospels are that. It's not just that they comport with each other, but they comport with what we know about history from other sources. So, for example, um, how much did people get paid? What were people's names? Now, you might think, well, who cares what people's names were? All those names in the Bible are weird. Well, actually... um, if you read the if you if if you look at names a century later in Israel or Palestine, the names had changed. Just like in America today, we don't name our kids. You know, back in the back when back when the first Americans came here, the first people came to America, almost two thirds of all the girls were named either Mary, Elizabeth, or Sarah. I think, and 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 those are still popular names. But there was a time when those were the absolutely the most common names. Anyone know the most common name for a boy today? Was it Michael? It might be Jacob. For a while it was Jacob. Luke? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, well, here, here's, a, here's an easy one, and I don't mean to pick on anybody with this, but, you know, in England, you know, they say the most common boy for a name right now is Muhammad. Was that the case 100 years ago? No. <laughs> Why? Because there wasn't all these, there wasn't a lot of Muslims there and having lots of children and, you know, not speaking badly about anybody. It's great to have children, um, but the point is that that's a historical anomaly. So if someone were to write a piece of fiction about, let's say Charles Dickens was writing you know, 200 years ago, 150 years ago in England, and he named a character Muhammad, that would be really weird. But if you did it today, it'd make sense, because there's pretty likely that a boy character in a story set at this time in England, that would be his name. And even, even you know, I always give the example, like if you wrote a detective story based in San Francisco in the 1940s. Jacob probably wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a terrible name because it's a biblical name and there's always Jacobs around, but Jake wasn't a really common name in the 50s. Probably a name like Fred would be more common. That's my dad's name. That was his dad's name. Lots of Freds going around in the 50s. Not many people name their kid Fred today. You know what I'm saying? So what we see in the New Testament, the point of that, is that the, the names actually correspond you know, really closely to what we know the names would have been with other people at that time. So that would be an example. Coins that people used. Um, you know, um, the labor practices, the agricultural practices, who the governors were, and other political leaders, the practices of the Roman Empire. All these things correspond. The names of cities. You know, there are like 39 names of cities and towns in the New Testament. 39. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but you're talking about some of these towns are like 100 people, and they don't exist anymore. And, and, and yet we do have corresponding evidence that those towns really were there. Um, so, 
you have a lot of specificity. Let me give one more example. That's one of my favorites. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells a story, it's only in Luke, about a tax collector. Tax collectors were not the favorite people of the Jewish people because they were still the same. Yeah, yeah. Because they collected money for the Romans. So these were Jewish people who were collecting money, money for the Roman Empire. You think that went over well? No, the Jews were the chosen people of God, right? The whole Old Testament is about their being the chosen people of God and having promised land. Now they're occupied by the Romans. Now a Jewish guy is going around collecting money and extra for the Roman Empire. Tax collectors were, were sinners. And they were considered sinful people. They were betrayers of, of the people of God. So there's a guy named Zacchaeus. And Jesus is coming through the town. And Zacchaeus wants to see him. He's a wee little man. That's the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And so he climbs up in a particular kind of tree, the gospel tells us. And, and do, you, do you know, Melissa, what kind of tree it was? Do you know that story? Climbed up in the sycamore tree. Yeah, it's a sycamore tree. Now, you might not think that's a big deal, but sycamore trees don't grow everywhere. They grow in Houston. Um, they, they, grow, they grow close to the equator. They grow in certain climates and so on and so forth. But they, 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 did grow, they do grow in Jerusalem. They do grow in Israel. So not a, not a huge deal. But if it would have said a live oak tree or, you know, a tree that's not indigenous to Israel, it would have been like, oh, that's weird. You know, why would the author say it's a tree that's not there? Um, but the fact that he specifically says it's a sycamore tree, the gospel doesn't hinge on it. It's one of those overlapping incidental details that gives correspondence that these people really know what's going on. They know the names of the people. They quote them accurately. They know the names of the towns. They know the money practices, the labor practices, the governors, the leadership, the structure of the Roman government, the structure and details of what goes on in the temple, the agriculture, what people ate, how they made money. I mean, all of these sort of things. It's a vivid picture of the ancient world. I mean, you, I mean, and in fact, the reality is that people use the Bible to do archaeology, you know, um, because the details are such, a, it's the best ancient uh, documentation we have, if anything else. So, okay, um, let me stop there. Any, any other questions or... So why, what does the word gospel mean? Let's, let's answer that quickly. The, the word gospel just means good news. Um, the Greek word is euangelion, and it, it, it basically means a proclamation of good news or good tidings. So like when the messenger would have come from the battlefront with good news that you just won the war, he would have come with euangelion. He would have come with good tidings. Hey, we won the war, okay? We won the battle. So the gospel writers talk about this same word, and, and they mean it as good news as well. They, they, they come from the from the battle, battlefield of Jesus. <laughs> and, and they have good news that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil. Um, and later in English, that becomes good spell, and that later becomes gospel. So when we talk about the gospels, there are four historical accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And they're called gospels because it's the good news. What is the gospel exactly? Exactly. Um, the gospel is... Basically, that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross as our substitute. He paid the price that God requires of us for our sins, all of our sins, all of the sins of the world. And 
when God rose him from the dead, he uh, vindicated, first of all, that he had been working through Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus, but he also conquered death. There is nothing that can now that God has not conquered. He's conquered the devil through temptation. He's conquered sin on behalf of his death on the cross. And he has risen from the dead. And now, the, so the good news is that Jesus has, and, and, and God working together as, as they are one, um, they have conquered death. And so people, we can be now people of hope because we know that our lives can have meaning and purpose, that we'll live forever, um, that we can be with God, um, as Jesus says, in paradise forever. So that's really what the gospel is. Um, if someone talks about the gospel and they don't talk about the cross really quickly, it's not the biblical gospel. Um, so there are other preachers, some of whom happen to be on TV quite a lot or on the radio. They never talk about the cross. The gospel becomes, you know, that you can have a better life, that you can become wealthy or something along those lines. Or um, that, that isn't really the gospel. Um, the gospel is what Jesus has done for you on the cross and from the resurrection, from his resurrection of the dead. That really is what the gospel is. Now, can Christians in some sense have a better life? Should we be, would we be wise if we had a good attitude? Yes, that's all true, but that isn't the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus did on the cross. Um, and from that, Christians live lives of hope in a way that the world does not live. We live lives of joy in a way that the world does not live. We have something to look forward to in the world that does not have. We have peace with God. Um, as Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. These are the ways that the gospel, that Christians live out the gospel. Okay, But the gospel isn't that we would have a better life. So I always want to have some clarity about that. Um, when we get into Galatians, because that's what we're going to do next, is study one book of the New Testament, the book of Galatians, in depth. And what we're going to look at there is, you know, what is the law? You know, what is the law of God? And the law of God is all the demands that God makes upon us. And um, so the law, is the, the law is, to put it simply, it's what we should do, and the gospel is what God has done for us. And a lot of times, even in Christian churches, those two things get confused. So, you know, the only thing you ever hear in church is how you should be a better person. You should be a better Catholic. You should be a better Christian. You should da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's all the law, and it's not bad, but it's not the gospel. The Lutheran approach is more of if you really understand what the gospel is and how good it is, you will live differently. You will bear fruit in keeping with your own repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. So it's a bit of a different approach. Let's talk a little bit about the content of the Gospels. So I've talked about four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and their content. I just want to give a really, really high overview of each Gospel, okay? Um, let's start with Matthew. So, um, and, and, and what I want to do is I just want to give you one thing in each Gospel that is really unique to that Gospel, okay? There's more that you could say, but I want to give you one thing that is unique to that Gospel. Matthew is first. It's probably not. The, it probably was not the first gospel written. Almost certainly, people believe Mark is the first gospel written. But Matthew is rather long. It's twenty-eight chapters long. It was written to um, almost certainly a Jewish audience. Matthew himself was a Jew. 
Certainly, he was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite. It's believed that he is the same Matthew that is also named Levi. Uh, Levi, that, that word should ring a bell because the third book of the Old Testament is Leviticus. So the tribe of the Levites, that was one of the sons of Jacob, Levi. Um, so the Levites were the priestly tribe that did all the sacrifices in the temple. Okay, So the, the Levites, or the Levitical priests, um, that tells you, so Matthew's, if, if he is the same Levi as, as was this tax collector, you, you, you can stop for a moment and just appreciate the social dynamics going on. Here's a guy who is of the Levitical family and tribe. He's the priestly family of the people of Israel. His family was responsible for killing all the animals and sacrifices in the temple for the forgiveness of sins and the, all that in the Old Testament. He's a guy who's collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. This is a person who is an outcast. He's probably hated by his own family, but he had to do it to survive. Jesus, instead of ignoring him and rejecting him, comes to him and brings him into the family of God and makes him a, you know, a witness to his work. So he's one of the 12 disciples. Perhaps the most famous part of Matthew is in Matthew 5. So let's just turn to that really quickly. So Matthew, again, first book of the New Testament, and Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7. So it's going to be closer to the back of the Bible, okay? Um, so you might see Luke or, uh, or Mark surrounding it or the book of Malachi. Um, so it'll be like page... So do you, yeah, your pages start over at the New Testament. So it'd be like page 5 probably, uh, right where you're at. Um, so Matthew 5 to 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it's called that because if you read the first verse of Matthew chapter 5, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach to them, saying. And then you have from there some of the most beautiful literature you'll, you'll find anywhere. And you also find a version of this in the Gospel of Luke. So it's not totally unique to Matthew, but Matthew's version is, is really the more famous version. And um, i got to grab a sip of coffee here. So this is Jesus preaching. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He probably gave the sermon more than once, probably gave it a lot um, over the three years of his ministry. But he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are they who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we could go on. There's obviously more there. Those are called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And I would say this is maybe the most famous part of the whole Gospel of, of Matthew. And if you want to understand what Jesus was about, just read the Beatitudes. What Jesus comes to bring is a message that is totally contrary to what the people would have expected. He goes against social norms, political norms, power dynamics. He lifts up the lowly, okay? He doesn't play favorites because people are powerful or wealthy. He's not impressed by any of that. Jesus is about bringing up the lowly. Now, what does it mean? The first phrase there is so fascinating, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
What that means in a nutshell is that you cannot come to God. You cannot come into the kingdom of heaven if you come to God on your terms. It just doesn't work. People must be humble before God. And the good news is that in Christ, the humble before God, the poor in spirit, they are blessed by God. So they are given everything you know, by God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I don't know if y'all are fans of Sting or the police, the band, the police. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the police. He quotes, Sting quotes this, this passage a lot. Um, in, uh, they say the meek will inherit the earth. Uh, this is in a, the third track from the album Synchronicity. Um, how does it go? Um, he says, they say the meek will inherit the earth. They're black and bruised and torn. I've been waiting since the day I was born. Anyway, I shouldn't be quoting Sting here. That's not what I'm about. But he doesn't get it. You know, Sting doesn't get it. He's not a Christian. He doesn't get the beauty of what Jesus is saying. You know, Sting's waiting for the world to bless the poor. That's what communists promise, right? Huh. Yeah, that, that, that's not the gospel. The world isn't going to bless the poor. God blesses the poor in spirit. Okay? And so without that humility, you cannot possibly come to have a right relationship to God. So I would say the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and Jesus, by the way, goes on in just a few verses. He goes on to say some really harsh things, things you may have heard before. He says, don't think I've not come to... He, well, first of all, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That's really important, because remember what I said is the New Testament is Jesus is fulfilling all the Old Testament. Um, and he says, like, if you've ever been angry with your brother, you've murdered him. So you don't get to go to God and say, hey, God, I never murdered anybody. Jesus says, were you ever angry with your brother? Then you murdered him in your heart. Did you look at a woman with lust? Then you've committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus says some really harsh things in the Sermon on the Mount. But the beginning of it is lifting up those who are poor and humble in spirit. Okay. So Matthew um, probably is writing to a, a, a Jewish audience and, 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 and convincing them or making an argument that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that he is kind of the new Moses, that what, the way that Moses brought the law to the people um, and brought the word of God to the people for the, throughout the Exodus, that Jesus now is the fulfillment of all of that, okay? So that would probably be the, the big pictures. Now, now, Matthew does tell the story of Jesus' um, genealogy, that is, his people all the way back, um, all the way back to um, Adam and Eve, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I can answer that quickly. Uh, um, oh, I take it back. He goes back to... to um, he goes back to Abraham. He goes back to Abraham. Uh, yeah, he goes back to Abraham, and Luke goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, anyway, so he has the genealogy, you have the birth story of Jesus, you have the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the calling of the disciples, and you have many of the miracles that are, you know, common as well to Jesus. You know, him raising people from the dead, uh, his, um, you know, his healing sick people, his confrontations with powerful people, um, and ultimately his own trial and death and resurrection, okay? So Matthew's a wonderful gospel because it kind of has a full spectrum and the full has lots of stories, lots and lots and lots of stories. Um, but I'd say Matthew 5 is should be, when you think of Matthew, that might be what you think of. Okay, Mark. Mark is a much shorter gospel. Mark is always in a hurry. He's the, uh, he's the writer with uh, ADD, okay? Um, you'll read and immediately. 
about 60 times in the Gospel of Mark, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, you get the impression that everything's happening like light speed in the Gospel of Mark, okay? There's a theory that Mark, remember, he comes later. In Acts, we find out he comes later. Um, Mark is a companion of Peter. Peter being one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the kind of chief disciple of all of them. And Peter goes on after Jesus' death and resurrection. He goes on and preaches the gospel all over the world. And Mark's hanging out with him during some of that. And, and, and these are basically the sermons of Peter. That's the theory about the gospel of Mark. Mark will tell one story in two sentences, whereas in Matthew and Luke, they tell it in 11. Okay, so he's really like the condensed version of some things. Um, so that's kind of the main thing to, to kind of know about Mark. Um, you know, there are some stories that he, he takes longer and he gives some more details. But when I think about Mark, um, I think about the, 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 the kind of way that he is always in a hurry to, to sort of move on to the next story. That's what kind of comes out. There's not a lot of long stories in Mark or, or anything like that. There are a few. Um, but, but that's really kind of what comes to mind um, with Mark. You do get an, an impression in Mark and some of the other um, Gospels that the disciples are continually perplexed by what's going on. Um, you know, they really don't, they really have no idea what Jesus is up to. Um, and you, you do get that, uh, you do get that impression very strongly in, in Mark. Mark is only 16 chapters, whereas uh, Matthew is 28 chapters. And, and not all chapters are the same length, but generally you get the impression it's, 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 it's much shorter. Um, and Mark was, um, he was a Jew, although Mark, Marcus, was a Greek name. Um, but you get the impression his audience would have perhaps been a mixed audience. And that would make sense if he was a companion to Peter, because he would have been going around preaching to the Jews first. That's how they spread the gospel. They preached to Jews first, since Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish scripture. And then they would have preached to Gentiles, because Jesus' death on the cross was for all people, including Gentiles. Okay. Um, okay, let's keep going then to Luke. Um, Luke, like I said, I, Luke might be my, my favorite gospel. Um, why don't we just look at the first couple verses of Luke? Um, let me just read the first four verses of the gospel of Luke. So Luke's the gospel after Mark. And I'm just going to read an, uh, in this translation. It's the first four, four well, this translation, I'm, I'm going to read it from this translation, which is the New International Version. It says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." That's a fascinating introduction, and it tells us a lot about the Gospel of Luke. I mean, it basically tells us he was commissioned to write an orderly account to someone named Theophilus about the beginning, about the, the ministry of Jesus. And, um, and, and so it's just really fascinating. It's also fascinating, he uses the word eyewitnesses. Um, this would be like when you turn on the news and it says, eyewitness news. You know, and they go to the man on the street and it's like, hey, what happened? Well, the guy went into the bank and he had a mask and a gun and he took all the money out of the safe. You know, it's eyewitness accounts of what, oh, that's really the, the gist of what Luke is getting at. Um, and so he says it's going to be an orderly account. Now, Luke has things that no other gospel has. 
I mean, every gospel has that, but Luke has particular things. And a lot of what he has is background to the birth of Jesus. So only in Luke do you hear about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, we're told in Luke, a cousin of Jesus who, when they're both about 30, John goes out to the wilderness and he preaches a sermon, lots of sermons, about repentance. You need to get right before God because the Son of God is coming. The Son of God is coming. The Lamb of God is coming. He's preparing people for the coming of Jesus. He didn't know who it would be. He didn't know it was going to be his cousin. But what he knew is that the Son of God is coming. The Son of God is coming. John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament. That's really how to think about it. He's, the, he's in the New Testament, but he really is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And he's in all the Gospels. And his death, John the Baptist's death, is in all the Gospels. John the Baptist even comes up in non-biblical material. Other historians talk about John the Baptist. He was an extremely important figure and, and, and a fascinating figure as well. But time is short. Um, when I think about Luke and what makes Luke really different, there, there, there are a number of things. But one, one I would say, because he does have some of the same exact material that Mark has and Matthew has. So that the theory is that Mark wrote first, then Matthew and Luke each have Mark with them. And instead of writing their own version of a story, they just copy it straight from Mark. Because even in the Greek, it's word for word the same, like 20 words in a row, exactly the same. So the idea is that Luke would have had Mark, and they were, they were copying from Mark from time to time. But there's, the, the, there's a real kind of pathos when you read Luke. There's a real human element. Not There, there is in all the Gospels, but in Luke, there's particular attention paid to the downtrodden to widows, to widows whose only son just died, that Jesus raises from the dead in Luke 7, for example. Um, you know, there's a real empathy with women, with orphans, with people who are poor. Um, those are really lifted up um, by Luke. So I'd ask people who maybe didn't grow up in church, have you ever heard the Good Samaritan? Is that a phrase that rings a bell? At least maybe if you don't know the story. Um, so the story of the Good Samaritan, basically, okay, the Samaritans, you need to know this, were, were, were sort of enemies of the Jews. They were part Jewish and part Gentile. They, 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 when occupying forces came in, they sort of compromised with the occupying forces, and they, they didn't remain 100% Jewish. So the Jews in Jerusalem really looked down on the Samaritans who lived in northern Israel. So Jesus tells a story, basically, of a guy who's going along a road, and he gets robbed and beaten, left for dead. And a Levite, we talked about Levites earlier, a Levite passes him by. And then a priest passes him by. And the third person to come by, uh, good stories will always work well in threes. You know, jokes work in threes, stories work on threes. Is a Samaritan, a non-Jew, who takes this guy, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, puts oil and vinegar, I think. Either he makes salad dressing or puts it on his wounds. I can't remember. Anyway, no. He, 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 yeah. He, he, he binds up his wounds and, and says to the innkeeper, take care of this guy. I'm going to come back for him tomorrow or the next day, and I'll pay you whatever I owe you when I come back. Um, in other words, he pays him up front, but if he stays an extra day for convalescence, I'll pay for that too. So the story is clear. The religious authorities, the Levites and the priests, they don't do anything to help people. But the, this Samaritan, who this person wanted, the person listening to the parable wanted to think of themselves as better in, you know, Jesus says... You know, hey, you know, this is the neighbor. This is the person who helps his, his neighbor. 
he, he feeds him, he, he, he cures him, he helps him heal and so forth. So that's one of those really touching stories. And it really would have been an offense to people who were listening to Jesus tell it. They would have been offended that the hero of the story was not a good Israelite, but a Samaritan, a half-breed, okay? So you see that a lot in the Gospels. Whenever Samaritans come up, know that it's a scandalous group of people according to good Jews. So you've got that story. Um, that, that's one. And, and by the way, we are the wounded person dead on the side of the road. Jesus is who comes from the outside, puts us on the donkey, and, and takes care of us. You know, so that, that's the sort of fulfillment of that story. It's not just a moral example of how we're to help people on the side of the road. I don't always stop for people on the side of the road. Sometimes it's not practical to help people on the side of the road, um, or even wise in, in some instances. You know, But it's not just a moral story about that. It's also about, ultimately, it's a picture of Jesus and the way that he saves us from our certain death. Okay. The other story is the prodigal son. That's another famous phrase even non-Christians may have heard before, the prodigal son. Um, and it's a story of a father, a wealthy father, who has two sons. And the youngest son um, says to the father, give me my inheritance early, which is a way of saying, I wish you were already dead. Okay, Give me my inheritance early. I want to go spend it and have some fun with my friends. So he goes off and spend, spends it. And, and the Bible essentially says in prostitutes, loose living, partying, debauchery, etc. Oh, he runs out of money. Wouldn't you know it? Um, like a modern-day Johnny Depp, you know? <laughs> Made $700 million in his career, and he's broke. You know, how does that happen? Um, $1,000 bottles of wine. That's how it happens. But anyway, um, so he runs out of money, and he's literally in a pigsty. And he's literally saying to himself, you know, it'd be better if I could just eat the food of pigs. Yeah, it'd be better if I could go back and be a servant for my father because they eat better than I'm eating now. And by the way, pigs are unclean to traditional Jews. So for him to be working among pigs, it is the lowest of the low. I mean, it is worse than scooping up horse manure. It is the worst job a Jew could have would be in a pigsty. Okay, so Jesus is using all these exaggerated ways of saying this is as bad as it gets, right? He goes home. The father welcomes him with open arms, puts, puts a clean robe on his filthy, poop-covered body, puts a golden ring on his filthy, poop-covered hand. He puts sandals on his filthy, poop You get the idea, right? I mean, this guy's filthy, right? And here's the father saying, my son has come back to me. He was dead, but now he was alive. And that is the image, then, of the grace of God who receives sinners into his midst. Now, the story's not over, though, because what happens is the older brother is going... What the heck? You're throwing a party for this kid? He took all your money and wished you dead and went out and used it on prostitutes and debauchery. I've been the good son. I've been managing the animals. I've been tending the farm. I've been lording over the servants. You don't throw a party for me when I want to have fun with my friends. And the father says, yes, but your brother was dead. Your, this brother of yours, he was dead, but now he's living. And so it's proper that we celebrate. And it kind of ends there. You actually don't know what the older brother, if their brother repents. This would have been another scandalous story. You know, Jesus is nothing if not absolutely scandalous. You know, we always think of him, he's just a nice guy. He was the most insulting um, character, if you were on the wrong side, that is. I mean, he wasn't cruel. I mean, he was godly, he was holy. But man, he told stories that the listeners would have heard and they would have been absolutely convicted 
by what he was saying because he was accusing them of being the person that overlooks the guy on the side of the road. And then the story with the older and the younger brother is that the older brother are the entitled Israelites, the entitled Hebrews, who don't want the lesser people to come into the kingdom of God. They, they look at everyone as sinners, unworthy of God's grace. They're the good people who always tended the, tended the sheep. They're entitled. And Jesus is saying, no, sinners who come back to the Father will be welcomed by the Father with a ring and sandals and a robe. So, you see, that would have been an offense to people who, th who thought they were the entitled ones. He says, he says uh, in times coming, when the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out regardless. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus comes and he turns the entire world upside down. And he begins in Jerusalem, but then it goes to the whole world too. Because a couple centuries later, the group of people, I'm not saying this is necessarily good, okay, it's complicated, but you know, the Romans persecuted Christians for, in some quadrants of the Roman Empire for 300 years. But then the Roman Empire, Emperor himself, Constantine, becomes a Christian on his, on his deathbed. And there are reasons he does it on his deathbed. Bad theological reasons. But anyway, eventually, Christianity becomes the de facto religion of the entire Roman Empire. So I'm not saying that's necessarily good. There are kind of bad things about that as well. But the point is that Jesus, in the, in the message of Jesus, I would like to think ultimately turns the world on its head um, and still to this day does that. So when I think about Luke, I really think about those parables that are only in Luke, like those two in particular, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, those are only in Luke. They're not in any other gospel. So he tells these really pathetic, and by pathetic, I mean full of pathos, full of empathy and feeling, you know, these parables that the hearer would have understood as being really controversial, but really depicting a powerful God who forgives sinners. And so that's, that's Luke. And while we're on Luke, he is the author then of Acts, another long book. It's the sequel to Luke. And it tells the story of everything from the, basically the resurrection of Jesus until you get up into the 60s. So it's the story of, um, you know, uh, of, of the, the disciples going out and proclaiming the gospel. It tells of various conflicts within the church and how they were resolved. And we'll get to that in a minute. But John, John, John. Okay, John, the fourth gospel, he is, in a, he is, he is very different from the other Gospels. And the more you hear and read the Gospels, the more you will see how different the Gospels, each one of them is. You'll get to know Mark and Matthew like they're your buddies the more you read the way they write. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the way, are grouped together often. They're called the synoptic Gospels. That's Greek for one eye, one vision, synoptic, one vision. They're grouped together because their style, the way they tell stories, is, is actually pretty similar in a lot of ways. John is totally different. John is so very different. So John tells only a few stories, but he tells them in great detail, okay? Um, and John 13, all the way until John 17, there's 21 chapters of John, but jo chapters 13 through 17, that's just one night. That's just Jesus last night with the, with the disciples. Um, so, so John 1 to 12 tells three years worth of stories. But he doesn't tell many stories. He only tells a few stories, but he tells them in a lot of detail. So John's very different. But I think the thing that is most significant about John is that, first of all, everyone agrees pretty much. Most, most scholars agree it was written last. It was written much later, probably the year 70, maybe even the year 80. Some people think the year 90. They used to think John was written like the year 120 or even 150. 
um, by someone that wasn't John but used the name of John. But what's fascinating is that recently we have found papyrus that we have dated to about 125. Now that's crazy if you think about it, being that close to the source material. Papyrus in the year 120, it's not huge, it's about the size of my phone. Um, but it's, it, it, it's a portion of John's gospel from about the year 125. And there are some people who now think they have found papyrus, actually not papyrus, but on, the, on, the, on funeral masks that they would have put on dead people, that on the underside of it were gospels and, and, and gospel writings um, that are even earlier than that. So, w w w and, and again, just so I, I keep harping on this, but compared to other ancient literature, most ancient literature is four or five or six or seven centuries removed from the original content. So that we have anything within a century of the writing is just incredible. Anyway, John is more theological. John is, is not interested in telling every story of the account. He probably knew about the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He might have known of all of them. And he might have seen, knowing himself and how he knew Jesus, he might have said to himself, you know what, um, I'm going to tell the story in a different way. I'm going to tell a few stories, but I'm going to tell more of a theological account now about who Jesus really was. So if I had to say one thing that stands out for John, it's probably the first sentence, the very first sentence. A very, very famous, highly debated sentence. Um, it's where we part company with Jehovah's Witnesses and, and other cult groups like that. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we could spend two hours just on that one sentence, and believe me, I've heard lectures for that long on this sentence. It's, a, it's, a, it's a extremely important. Basically, what John is saying is that, first of all, he says, in the beginning. There's another book of the Bible that begins in the beginning, and it's the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is clearly referencing Genesis. He is saying, he is depicting them the time before the creation of the world. Okay, In the beginning was the word. The Greek word there is logos. It's where we get the word for logic or biology or etc. Logos. And the word was with theos or God, which John's understanding is that it's the Father. The word was with God. And so when you talk about with, you talk about two beings in the presence of one another, right? So like Abel is with Brian. Or Amanda is with Evan in the car. They're two distinct people. They're with one another, right? So now we have two. In the beginning, before the creation of the universe, was the Word. So whatever the Word was, it's always existed because it was there in the beginning. And now the Word was with God. They're distinct. But now watch. Here's a mind bender. And the Word was God. <laughs> so they're one. They're two, and they're one. They're two, and they're one. They're, they're two distinct things, and now they're one. What does that mean? Well, that's, of course, the beginning of our Trinitarian theology, how God is tripersonal, because eventually we'll have the Holy Spirit as being the third person, tripersonal, one nature. And that's the teaching of the Trinity. When you talk about Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the name into which you're baptized, we are talking about the Trinity, the triune name of God. But, it, but, but you could argue just from this one sentence you have a binity, a two-person, one God, because of what he says. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So whatever they are, they're the same. And whatever they are, they're distinct. Okay. I always tell my kids it's like this. Let's say there's three people here. There's only one being because the three of us are human beings. You know, you're not a dog and you're not a cat, and I'm a person. You know, 
there's only one being here. It's not a perfect analogy, but there's three distinct persons. It's not a good analogy. It's not perfect because nothing is like the Trinity. But, but I would say, and if you follow the whole prologue of the gospel, which is considered to go all the way until verse 18, um, like if you read verse 14, just in case you're wondering who in the world the word might be, who is the Lagos? Verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, is the literal Greek word there, tabernacled. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who became from the Father, who came rather from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a reference to Christ, of course. The word is Jesus. Okay? So when I think about John and the Gospel of John, I think, first of all, he takes a very different approach to telling the story of Jesus. It's fewer stories and a lot of detail. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't talk about himself very much. In the Gospel of John, other people have said, he never shuts up. <laughs> and uh, I don't mean that to sound rude, of course, to my Lord, but the idea is that Jesus talks a lot about himself and a lot about his relationship to the Father in the Gospel of John, but not in other Gospels. So, um, so I would say there, there's so much more one could say, but um, a lot of people kind of like John the best, um, and I don't know, Luke might, may be my favorite gospel. We don't need to have a favorite, but, um, but I would say that John is certainly the most eloquent, the most beautiful. It is poetry. On, 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 I mean, it's, it's poetry. Um, and there, there's also interesting theories as to why John can include things that other gospels do not. The most interesting theory is that he is writing so late that he no longer needed to protect anonymous identities of people. Um, so, for example, only in John do we get the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after three days. Why is that? Because Lazarus was hunted um, by people after his own resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and the idea is that we can now talk about who, the, who, who is Lazarus, whereas the other Gospels may, may have been protecting his identity. That's just a theory, but... Um, there's some, there's some talk about that. Okay, any questions about the Gospels? I mean, the best thing to do with the Gospels is just read them. Just read them. Read them a lot. Read them often. You'll, you'll, they'll get to become your friends after a while, and you'll see their differences immediately. Um, it'll get to the point, the more you read them, where you could read maybe a paragraph from any Gospel, and, I, and you'll know, oh, that's John, because you'll know oh, that story's only in John. Or that's John's style of writing. Or that's Mark, because he says, and immediately. <laughs> and Mark's always saying that. Or that's Matthew, because, you know, you know. anyway, you, you get to know them better, but you just have to read them a lot. But that's kind of a high-level introduction. And I've only got 10 minutes, so I'm just going to keep talking, and then we can have Q&A after that if you want to stay. But I don't want to keep all past 11. <sighs> What's left in the, in the New Testament? The New Testament's 27 books. We've only looked at four of them so far, and we've talked about Acts as well. Acts is the historical story of what happens from the resurrection until the 60s, until basically close to the time when Peter and Paul die. Okay. Um, a lot of what you have left in the Bible are the writings of Paul. Who was Paul? Paul is an extremely important character in the, in the Bible. 
Um, his name begins as Saul, and he was a Pharisee. Remember, I talked about Pharisees earlier. They were a group of Jews who came up in between the Testaments, um, and they were really, really like conservative Jews who wanted to preserve the Jewish way of life while they were occupied by the Romans. So Paul probably had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, I would say, almost certainly. He might have had the entire Old Testament memorized. He was an absolute brilliant guy. He was an absolute scholar, and he was on fire for the law of God. And he heard about these Christians, and he felt that they were teaching things that were untrue because they were talking about how Jesus was God's son, and Jesus was risen from the dead to fulfill the law of God. Well, this was very offensive to Jews, and we see that in Acts and other books of the Bible in the New Testament. I mean, still to this day, if you talk to an Orthodox Jew about Jesus, they might not even want to listen to you speak because it is so offensive that God could become flesh. Um, same for, for Muslims, by the way. Um, so you got to be very careful in how you talk about these things if you're doing that kind of ministry. Um, but that said, Paul then was a Pharisee. He was a very conservative Jew, and he is responsible for killing the first Christian martyr. That's recorded in the book of Acts in the sixth chapter. His name was Stephen. Um, so Stephen was the first Christian ever killed for the faith, and they laid the stones, they stoned him, at the feet of Saul. And, and Luke writes about it really poetically. Of course, Luke eventually becomes Paul's friend. So Paul is telling him this story, almost certainly. Now, eventually what happens is Paul has a road to Damascus experience. You may have ever heard the road to Damascus, saw a bright light on the way to Damascus. That's the story of Saul, who hears Jesus saying from the heavens, why are you persecuting me? And eventually, I'm short on time, so I'm going to go quick. Saul is baptized. He becomes a member of the church. And even though the early Christians don't really trust him because he killed Stephen, eventually what happens is that he becomes the main evangelist, the person who spreads the gospel um, to, to first to Jews, but really to Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. Okay? So if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. You know, there are ways for figuring out your mother has to be Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. You're part of the 12 tribes, et cetera, et cetera. You can trace your lineage all the way back. You know, there are Orthodox rabbis to this day who trace their lineage all the way back to, you know, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, okay? Um, but if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. You're, 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 a, 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 you're a pagan. You know, you're a Roman person, whatever. So Paul has this really bizarre message of a dead Jew on a cross who was risen from the dead for the forgiveness of all people's sins, not only the fulfillment of Jewish scripture, remember, all the Old Testament, but actually for the forgiveness of sins to Gentiles too. So Paul kind of has this peculiar miss mission to uh, Gentiles. And, um, and you see that in the book of Acts. You see that there are people who are given to preach to the Gentiles and people who are given to preach to the, to the, to the Jews. Um, and so that's who Paul is. He's converted. He becomes a proclaimer of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his resurrection. He goes around on two major journeys that each took several years apiece, and during which journeys he was beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, <laughs> left for dead, left in, for exposure, uh, abandoned by all of his friends, abandoned by people he converted to the faith. I mean, he goes through hell and back to proclaim this gospel. Um, but as he goes from place to place, he establishes Christian churches. And what he would usually do is he'd preach to the Jews first because Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, so you might as well preach to the Jews first. 
Then, if they didn't listen, he'd preach to the Gentiles and say, the gospel's for you too. And as he would go to these places like Thessalonica, like the area of Galatia, like Corinth, um, like Ephesus, uh, if these names ring a bell, Galatia. These were places he would go to proclaim the... Did I already say Galatia? Anyway, uh, places he would proclaim the gospel and establish churches. And then he would leave. And then he would keep in touch with him through letters. So a lot of what we have in the New Testament after the Gospels are other people's mail. Now I'm going to ask you, do you guys ever go to your neighbor's house and go to their mailbox and open it up? Oh, look at my neighbor. She's being summoned by the IRS. <laughs> you know, Do you ever do that? No. Well, you read other people's mail every time you read the New Testament. That's what you're reading. You're reading letters that Paul wrote to churches that he established. Or in the case of Romans, to Christians in Rome, he had not met them yet, but he was writing them... Um, you know, look, there are people who, there are churches that spend literally three or five years preaching just through the book of Romans, okay? So I don't have time to go through each book, but the letters are, are different. Romans, for example, is a highly theological work. Peter didn't, Paul didn't know the people he was writing to. He just knew there was a church there and maybe he'd gotten word what the questions were. So he's writing really advanced theology, uh, you know, to these people. By the way, if anyone wants to think that ancient people were stupid, please read the book of Romans, okay? These people were way more learned than we were. <laughs> um, they were learned in philosophy and in poetry and in Paul's case, the entire Old Testament. Uh, these were people who were way more lettered and learned than, 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 than we are to this day because we play, you know, Super Mario Brothers when we ought to be <laughs> learning Latin or something. So, um, so just, just for what it's worth, these were not stupid people. These were extremely bright people and well-read people. I mean, pagan, uh, Paul can quote pagan philosophers and poets just as easily as he can quote scriptures. So, but, but Romans, for example, is an absolute masterpiece of theology, an absolute masterpiece. And uh, as you read through it, you'll see that what Paul is doing is he's describing the way that we are in bondage to the law of God, but how Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf, that we are saved by grace through faith, or by faith through grace, I would rather say. Um, and, and the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, it's all there in Romans. Other letters are more occasional. By that, I mean there was a fight going on at the church in Corinth, and Paul's got to work it out, you know. Um, so sometimes he's writing kind of universal letters about general theological topics. Sometimes, uh, you know, like in the book of Corinth, you have a, a guy who married his stepmother. You might realize that's inappropriate. <laughs> so Paul's got to be like, what the hell is going on there, you people? Uh, I thought you people became Christians. You're marrying your stepmother? Um, you know, or works out other things like where Christians are suing each other in the court of law. Paul's got to work that dispute out. So sometimes it's very occasional, um, but sometimes the letters are, are, are really more theological. But there are 13 letters by Paul written by, uh, and possibly 14 if he wrote Hebrews. Uh, nobody really knows who the author of Hebrews is, but Hebrews is a fascinating book because it's, it's super duper 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 Jewish in its outlook. It's all about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all things Old Testament. The priesthood, the prophets, uh, the sacrifices in the temple, 
how Christ is the fulfillment of all that. Christ is the priest. Christ is the sacrifice. And Christ is the temple. He's all three of those things, which the book of Leviticus you know, details how the sacrificial system would work for God's people. I know I'm going really fast, but unfortunately we're just short on time. Yeah, um, Jews were to like, say Jews are part of his family. If he wants to convert, he's basically like his own, right? And Jews don't do that. Jewish is like being like who they are. Modern day Jews? Yeah. It depends. An Orthodox Jew, if he were to convert to Christianity and his family's Orthodox, yes, that would be a yeah, real yeah. scandal. Yeah. Now, they wouldn't put him to death like they yeah. might in other religions that I won't name at present, yeah. but um, but yeah, it would be tough. Now, the thing about Judaism that's ever since the destruction of the temple, which which is we talked a little bit about last time, the, destru- the temple, remember there are two temples. There's the first temple that Solomon had built, right? That David's son, Solomon, the third great king of Israel when the, Israel was united. He built a great temple, and it's an amazing thing. But it was destroyed in the year 586 B.C. Then for about 90 years, there was no temple because the Babylonians took over Israel. And then later, they're allowed to go back into Israel and rebuild their temple. So the second temple was built, and it lasted until the year 70 A.D., so about 37 years after the death of Jesus, about 40 years, okay? And Jesus foretold the destruction of the temple, okay? And that's why the dating of the Gospels, by the way, becomes important. Remember how saying, well, this one might have been written in about the year 62, and Mark could have been written earlier. That's important, because if it was written before 70, it was written before the temple was destroyed. And, and, and so then you really have Jesus talking about what's going to be happening, not what, what, what already did happen. Anyway, when that temple is destroyed, the Jews, if you think about it, have an entire sacrificial system that you can read about in the book of Leviticus of killing goats and bulls and birds and bringing grain offerings onto the altar and burning it, burning it up. I always joke, if we really wanted to give offering at this church, you'd all give in cash, not checks. We'd put it on the altar and... Um, We'd light it on fire. Because yeah. yeah. that's actually what happens a lot in the Old Testament. Yeah. They, they see, save some of the meat, and they save a lot of it, but sometimes they put things in the altar and it's a sheer sacrifice by, by which it will be gone. See, the problem with burning a check, of course, is that you just tell your bank, well, this, my, my, my check was put on an altar and it was burned, so we're going to avoid that check. No problem, but you burn cash and it's gone. Yeah. Like the Joker in, uh, yeah. in the third uh, Batman, I think. Didn't he burn a pile of cash? Anyway. Yeah, he got very big. Okay. So that was like his uh, grain offering, you might say. Anyway, um, so, um, uh, gee, what was I talking about? Um, anyway, um, I think I was talking about Hebrews and, and, and Jesus being the fulfillment of that or something else. But um, what we're going to do next time is we're going to look at the book of Galatians. And Galatians is one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, which was a big area, would have been multiple churches, um, today we would we would call it Asia Minor. It basically, I think, today be in Turkey. And Galatians is a great book. It's a short book, and it's an occasional letter. What I mean by that is it's written for an occasion, written for an issue going on. And the issue was um, you had Paul had gone to the churches. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He made distinctions between Jews and, and, and you know and, and Christians and, and and part of what made a Jew a Jew, remember, part of the way the males identified themselves was through circumcision. 
And so Paul is making the argument that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. You don't have to become a Jew to then become part of the fulfillment of the Jewish promise. You don't have to become circumcised to then become a Christian. And so that might sound kind of weird to us now, but it was a huge deal in the early church. Um, And so what you have in Galatians is Paul's writing a letter to the Christians that he administered to, but then he had to leave. Other people come in behind him and they say, well, if you really want to be a Christian, you actually have to become a Jew first. That means you got to get circumcised. And some of them would have said, and you can't eat pork, right? Because an Orthodox Jew doesn't eat pork. So, um, you know, for example, and there are other laws as well. You can't eat shellfish and you know, things like that too. But um, so being from Louisiana, eating crawfish, you know, that would be a real problem. Um, anyway, but Christians eventually can, you know, are get told by God that they can eat pork and all this sort of thing, but but they don't need to become circumcised. Um, so it's a real dispute. It's an occasional dispute, but it ends up being a window into this complex Jewish-Gentile question that we've kind of hinted at. But Paul's going to really basically set the groundwork for what the law of God is, what is the law, and what is the gospel. And he's answering kind of the Jewish-Gentile question. But we can definitely take Galatians and extrapolate it from there. And we can basically say, what, is, what do we understand the gospel to mean you know, for us today as well? And um, it's really fascinating. And what's really cool about Galatians is that it's not boring at all. I mean, when Paul's writing this letter, you can see the steam is coming out of his ears and you know, the sweat is coming off of his face. I mean, he is, he is really angry. I mean, he is really incensed that the gospel he preached is now being sacrificed for a false teaching. And actually, all it was was people getting circumcised. (laughs) And if you think about today, the false gospels that are preached today, circumcision was, I mean, it was a big deal, but it it wasn't what's preached today. I mean, frankly, I could throw a rock. Well, if I was a little bit stronger, maybe. You know, I I could hit some churches not that far from this building right here, and they are preaching even worse than what was preached to the Galatians, and uh, just false gospels left and right. So we're going to do Galatians in depth because all I wanted to do today was kind of give an overview of the, old, of the New Testament, and then we're going to really drill down just into one book, and 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 um, you know, and then we'll we'll kind of take it from there. Any questions, though? I know I, I'm sorry. I did a lot of talking. Um, I, I do apologize for that, but there's so much to cover. Any kind of questions or thoughts or, like I said, you could spend years and years. You know, there's a, there's a program called Bible Study Fellowship, BSF. They spend seven years going through the Bible. So we just did it in two, two weeks, so two, two hours more or less, three hours. So it's really, really overview. It's, you know, but uh, I'm recording this, so if you, like I said, if you can't make a lesson, you can listen back to it, or if you want to listen to it again, because we went really fast. And again, I also put out this other podcast, um, The Scarlet Thread, and it's just daily Bible readings. And so to get more and more familiar with the Bible, I, I do recommend that, because um, it helps just kind of get you familiar with it. Because it takes a long time to get familiar with the Bible, so.